Welcome to another episode of Problem Busters. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Ollie. How are you? You certainly are. I'm very good, sir. And yourself? I am good, thank you. What is on the agenda today? Well, today we have Esther Ivan joining us, and she is a dance movement psychotherapist, a student counsellor, and a somatic coach. If those things are new to you, don't worry, we will explain them. But welcome to the show, Esther. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Good evening. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. It's great to have you here. Really interesting things ahead to talk about. Perhaps if we just start with the framing of the problem and then go into a bit about you. In terms of the problem we're going to talk about today, folks, it is how to learn remotely. And I guess in subtext, how difficult it's been to learn remotely over the last year and some of the things that folks can do to help students and also help themselves if they are a student to learn remotely. So Esther, tell us a little bit about you and where you're from and your multiple careers. <laughs> uh, so I'm Esther Ivan. I came eight years ago to UK to study dance movement psychotherapy, which was actually my dream. Originally, I'm a psychologist. I trained in my country and worked there as well before I came to UK. And after that, I wanted to combine my two passions. So one was psychology and the other one was dance. Because since age of five, I know I was a stage. I used to dance a lot. And dance was something in my life which helped me to get to cope with a lot of struggles, difficulties or conflicts. And I remember I used to dance a lot with my dad. So I thought that is something, the two things to combine. It will be a great pleasure to do and later to work. And I managed to do that. And then after I did somatic coaching as well, because I had some struggling at workplace. I was close to have a burnout because financially I supported my studies working in hospitality industry. So I thought, why mm, not to, yes, <laughs> yes, why not to study something which I can help myself with and later others. So this is where the coaching is coming from. And, and what is somatic yes? coaching, Esther? So somatic coaching is coming from the mindset that body and mind are connected. And I see the person, the client as a whole. I don't see a uh, separate, so there is not always just talking. There is always sensations in the body. There are always postures, gestures, reactions, which I might notice, but maybe the client doesn't. So my role is to raise the awareness, raise the body awareness of the client to these, to spot, and then uh, for themselves to acknowledge, because my approach is that the body is an advocate to initiate change or transformation. And if I initiate change on a body level, it can help to change on a behavior level or an emotional level and on another way around as well. So everything has an effect on the other. So for example, let me give you an example, which maybe uh, makes it um, easier to understand that if a client share an experience 
and I notice that they don't breathe. They're holding their breath. Actually, I'm the one who can acknowledge that and ask, have you noticed how is your breathing now? And they give me, oh, yeah, I'm holding. So I initiate. Maybe just start to breathe, just to breathe in and out. And with that flow, the tension can go. And it is letting go the stress that can help to ease the topic, the emotional attention, and can be more relaxed and maybe more thoughts are coming into the process. And then we can we work long. And this is not just with breathing, but it can be muscle tension, any sensation on a body level. Mm. And just prior to the call, you happened to notice this about me when I was asking you, what is somatic coaching? And, mm. and I was holding my breath, wasn't I? And now all I can think about is breathing. <laughs> <laughs> what is interesting is when I breathe in, I stand up straight. Mm. And uh, that's like an instant change. Yes. Um, what happens if you breathe in now, Jonathan? Much, actually. <laughs> I'm sitting down. That's probably because you're a great breather. No, I'm sitting in the chair that's forcing my posture to be very good. <laughs> but yeah. It's quite interesting about the breathing stuff because immediately when you said about um, picking up on cues and, and things um, that clients have, one thing is probably a bit left field, but was like poker players and things mm. like that, giving away tells and stuff. Have you ever had like a poker player approach you and ask, <laughs> do no. I do something? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it would be interesting. Yeah, it would be interesting where that end up. And what kind of conversation would be as a result of that? That's wonderful. So, because I really didn't know what somatic coaching is or, or what it is. If I'm, correct me if I'm wrong in understanding, it's just a case of you can pick up on the signs, on the physical signs that a client exhibits whilst they're sort of speaking or interacting day to day. And that will give you a clue into what could be affecting them, whether it be like anxiety or stress. Is that right? I think, yes, this is the starting point, actually, ah, okay. where the whole process starts. Because as mm. soon as I'm picking up, giving as a feedback, my aim is that the client will do it for um, themselves. For example, if they start to notice that anxiety is arising or there is a situation with their manager and there is a tension going on, then they can notice, oh, okay, so I'm now holding my breath. My muscles are more strength. Okay. So then maybe I'm going to take a deep breath. And it's just a couple of seconds. And they will be there present in that moment in a different way. And it's for their, their beneficial um, way of being or the way they can more regulate their um, emotions and anxiety or anything what arises. So it's around um, body awareness, self-regulation, more um, being alive in the moment and in the present and fully experience it. And But, but at the same time, not being overwhelmed um, with it. Or, or for example, if, if someone always comes to me that they are always really tired, exhausted, and just they are noticing that they are just doing too much, so I'm helping them to see the body signs way before it happens and to stop there because maybe they just don't notice, but their body shows their signs, but they consciously, their mind ignores it for some reasons. 
So I'm helping them to, to prevent what they are suffering and they can feel easy to get back the control and to regulate. This is around that. So does that link into when you talk about reconnecting with our body's wisdom? Is that what that means? Or is fantastic? Fan- yes, absolutely. That's, that's pretty, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do it. So we, we do it as a professionals as well. So in that space, I'm always connecting with my own body too and listening to the signs or where I feel tension or or where what I feel because it this kind of somatic informations can help me to help the client as well. So it's a both way process. It's happening in relation and in everyday life as well, it's happening. So when some clients, coaching clients has issues like overcoiling moods always has an effect on me. Okay, so let's work on how you can keep more boundary, how you can feel your own body rather than feeling someone else's emotions or have an effect on you. So these are the things which as, as a somatic coach I can help with to improve. And how did that lead you on to dance? So this was the first thing <laughs> that was before all of these. And dance movement therapy as well, before all of these. And then when I learned coaching, I felt that it's really verbal, something always happening on, on a talking way. And then my field is not about much as talking, more nonverbal way of communication and finding way to heal. So I was thinking, okay, what is the field in coaching where I can use my other knowledge of the body? And then I found out, yes, somatic coaching is existing. And that's why I applied it all. But dance was always there for me and always has been there for me. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's like a fusion of what you love doing, like dancing and what your your sort of your 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 training, your passion is as well. So that's really good. Linking it to sort of every day, the current situation we're in with regards to COVID, is there any sort of somatic approach you've taken for things such as sort of grief counselling and things like that? Yes. So I'm a grief recovery specialist and I'm following a specific method to process grief. And I apply somatic approach and my way of thinking of body-mind when my clients needs help with regulation, self-regulation. So for example, they don't feel ready to wake up in the morning. They don't feel they cannot manage a day at work or at home without crying or it's really difficult for them to go home from the workplace because there is not anymore the person who they loved. So um, just so I understand, self-regulation, is that just activities that you usually you do without thinking every day? Could you explain what self-regulation yes. is? Yes. So self-regulation is around our nervous system is reacting on the emotions which we experience on stress. And we can feel really easy overwhelmed by it. So when you cannot stop crying or you are shaking, but through techniques, for example, touching your own skin or noticing the chair you are sitting in and you are touching it, or my favorite one, I have two favorite ones. One is noticing the way you walk, which can be really 
grounding and regulating for yourself or just lying on the floor and feel your weight against the floor. And through this, the experience or the main aim is, is to feel the support what your own body can give to you. And this is always there. So it's not something which is an external or you need to buy or something. It's with you all the time. If you're comfortable and you like to use it, some people use different things. Some people like this one, other one. They can connect with their bodies and they feel more ease and a bit more calm. And they're still going to cry and they're still going to miss the person. And the pain will be maybe less, but just part of their life more. But there is a process, so it can be processed rather than being overwhelmed and losing control in that. So this is what I mean by self-regulation or helping to regulate nervous system, their body. And it's interesting because, unfortunately, the at least the culture that I grew up in in New Zealand, there was this idea of, you know, that saying, don't mention the war, as in, let's not talk about the thing that's worrying everybody because it's upsetting. Let's just put it away. And that just seems to have caused so much grief to people and also prevented the processing of grief, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. And this is something around, yes, this kind of society message around being alone. And yes, we can leave the person alone, just need space. No, I don't think so that grief should happen alone in a supported community way it's actually processed quicker and more naturally and yes grief can be shared and everyone is allowed to share it and this is part of my process that first I work with these kind of messages what we learned through our life or through society or what we heard and to see okay how these were just not working through the process what would have been more beneficial or what the person or the client can give now uh, for themselves to help the process. Hmm. Sort of touched on the process. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's time to see what we can address with with regards to the problem? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. It's just so interesting, right? Yeah, it really is. (laughs) Well, Esther was talking, I was just thinking, (laughs) you know, the lie on the ground thing? Mm. That definitely is a thing for me, especially on a carpeted mm. floor. And sometimes I've just, I just feel like I've been carrying too much mm. action that day and I just need to lie down. And interestingly, it's also both mine and my fiance's favorite part of a yoga class. <laughs> it's oh, lying yeah. on the ground at <laughs> the end. <laughs> Maybe that's connected, right? Mm-hmm. That feeling of being supported by the I'm ground sure. and not having to hold yourself up, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But yes, you are right, Jonathan. Let's move swiftly on. So let's talk about your current role, Esther, as student counsellor. Tell us a bit about that, and then let's apply that to what you've observed in the last year of lockdown with students. Okay. Uh, So I work since now three years as a student counsellor at Irie Death Theatre Company. This company was founded by Beverly Green for a 1985, in 1985. So their aim is to promote diversity uh, through dance and uh, this um, dance course. And this bachelor course, I'm the student counselor for the uh, students. This lockdown was the one of the biggest challenge was that 
most of them didn't feel comfortable to access my service counseling from home or from their environment where they live. And this is, I wasn't that much uh, surprised at the beginning of that because this is a private thing. You don't want anyone to hear what you are sharing. You don't want your parents or, or even if no one is, it's your home. Even it's more difficult to leave that behind after a session when you are going back to the same space. Biggest um, challenges which noticed on the first lockdown part. On the second one, somehow they get to used to it. And it was way more easier. I offered group sessions as well, not just individual ones. And there they were open or they found their own way how they can share more or how they can feel more safe or where they can go to feel safe to share. Someone, for example, had a session from their car, which was the best place to be. No one was around, no one listened. So actually it offered creative ways of coping uh, with the situation. And for them as well, what I noticed and with other students, because they're special dancer students, is this was an extra pressure on them. They still had the same things as before. They still had the same issues in the life, what's going on. And also another big challenge is for those students whose career were kind of questioned during the pandemic. So they were in a crisis, either in hospitality students or any students in the art world or other areas which were really hit hard. And a lot of them kind of questioned their career path. So I felt my role more like keeping the hope for them instead of them and trying to find a way how to help them to reconnect with their initial passion, what they had when they choose this career path. These are really big, I think, issues and, and challenges for them currently. Mm. What was quite interesting was the hope of the choices of the career mm. path and the doubt. What was your approach to sort of trying to, I don't know, because if it's with hope, I don't want to use the word reaffirm and, and say, okay, you should stick to what you stick to your guns. But no, no, no. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what was your approach to sort of addressing that? First of all, I really want, I really gave them space, a non judgmental space to share why they are questioning it, what is there for them. And then I asked them to remember back why they choose. And most of them had the chance to reconnect with the joy and with the fun and with the happiness, what it used to give. And I think this is something key, which I would give as, as a tip that to reconnect with that happiness and joy, what it used to give rather than just the problems and the issues currently. And you could see the change on their faces when they started to remember and their whole body felt different. So I could connect to that. Do you notice the difference? So what does stop you now to feel the same still? So this is what I mean to keep the hope and to give them back the hope. And they still can decide they're not going to do it, but at least think twice of that decision. How did they handle the delivery of a dance course remotely? The company is really supportive, so they tried the best what they could. I mean, some of them moved their furnitures, so I sewed upside down beds and chairs on the side just to have more space. I mean, the way they managed, they tried to do what they could and to use technology 
to be more creative and using video on in a park to make recordings. So yeah, this way what I noticed they tried, but they are not fun of being online. That's for sure. <laughs> Did you find there was less of an impact of it being online or was it just the same as being in person? I prefer being in person. I can work on the same level until a certain point online because I don't feel safe to work with trauma or trauma-related materials, but this is not my job at, at IRE with the students. So I felt comfortable. For me, the challenge was if I had to do a, a hybrid one, a hybrid where I had a monitor, the one or two students or more, and then I had students in the space as well, and I was in the space too. So that I found really challenging. <laughs> Just because of the attention, this shared attention at point, actually I need to admit, but I forgot the monitor that there are still someone. So the person was shouting in and we were laughing. So it made it ease. So that's difficult. <laughs> We've all seen that in meetings when there's one person mm. remote on a laptop, right? <laughs> that person never gets a chance to contribute yes. as much as the people that mm. are in full 3D around the table. Yeah. But I need to give that space for all of them. In society today, for people listening now, what advice could you give them to help reconnect to themselves? And I think one of the most important thing is whatever they are doing, they be in the moment and really experience it and focus on that. So if they are eating or drinking or just noticing their clothes on their body, really experience it. So this is one thing. The other thing, it's important to do something what they enjoy. And it can be anything. The tiniest thing, what gives joy. Do you know, I remember somebody saying that to me many years ago, Jonathan. They said something like, if you really don't like the person that you're having a meeting with and you really can't get away from them because let's say they're your main customer or something like that, then just don't imagine them naked. Don't imagine them on the toilet, which are two kind of old 90s ideas, but just try to just find something about them that you like and focus on that. And I was like, haha, that's such a ridiculous idea. That would never work, but it always <laughs> does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is that kind of what you mean, Esther? That in that case, I'm focusing on the fact they just have really cool hair or mm. they've just done something really good or that's a great presentation and they still made my life difficult and I'm still annoyed, but it was still a great presentation. Yeah. Yes, this is something like that. I'm guessing with sort of that advice, would you say that's probably sort of the easiest advice that, say, myself and Ollie can actually give to other people, such as our partners and colleagues and friends just focus on your clothes focus on just living in the moment being in the moment when you're when you're there to try and sort of ground you and reconnect yes and really like listen feel experience mm. what is going on there for you and in your body so it's something more around not to think about it but really to sense it because this is how you can connect with yourself and also what I usually say we have a whole body don't forget certain body parts because it's easy <laughs> to forget for example our back 
think mm-hmm. is sometimes it's really useful to remind ourselves that we have a back. Yes. Mm. And actually, that's the essence of a scientific inquiry, isn't it, really? To just notice things and then wonder why and then do something about it, right? Yep. All I can think about is breathing. (laughs) 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 When I'm not thinking about breathing, I'm thinking about standing up straight. (laughs) I'm just thinking about feeling the chair underneath me now. So, (laughs) Oh, this is pretty cool. I love it. (laughs) So in your experience, how has this helped people during the first and second lockdown, your advice? What is the significant changes you've seen in people who apply these techniques that you've sort of coached? I think easiness. So the way I can be like from the storm or for feeling really anxious or like really lost is something gives them a kind of peace and inner peace. Yes. To be okay, to feel okay within whatever they are experiencing or how they are experiencing and to help them to connect with something which they know or they know it's theirs. It's no one else. No one says about them anything. It doesn't depend on any information or whoever thinks what. So it's really under their control that they can feel that, they can sense that. It's giving back this feeling of of control as well, which I think it's really important. Yeah. Me being me, of course we're in <laughs> lockdown, but mm. the whole... Uh, I like the food and taste and just mm. enjoying it. So yes. I think I've had the most diverse diet I've ever had from lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Yeah, I've gone through a very different taste. Just think I'll test. I was really ashamed to, to say, I think it was a few podcasts ago <laughs> with one of our guests. We were talking about, it's not sauerkraut. What's the other version, Oli? You mean kimchi? <laughs> Yes, kimchi. I've never had kimchi mm. before. First time I had it was in lockdown after that. How good is it, right? Yeah, it's really mm. good. It's really good. Yeah, those Koreans know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically the same concept of a certain kind of cabbage that's been put in a brine and mm-hmm. left to ferment, right? Like the same process as gherkins and so forth. But I think the kimchi style obviously includes the all-important garlic and chili. <laughs> right, yeah. Jonathan? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I did try yes. for sure as well. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, really something that, that came to mind when you were talking, Esther, is I remember a coach saying, I think it was a sales uh, training course, when they were talking about getting in the right state of mind where you want to call someone and offer them what you have. And that getting into that state of mind being the biggest part of doing this job, the hardest part, if you like, the biggest hurdle. And one of the things that they said was, remember that emotion is energy in motion. Mm. And if you stop that motion by tensing up and trying to ignore it, then that energy will get stuck and you'll Mm -hmm. end up needing a really expensive massage. And I remember everybody (laughs) laughed. But I think there's some truth to that. Yes, there is. Yes. Because that emotion needs space to get processed. You need to feel to get through it, it's not going to last forever. It's going to pass. But if you ignore it, it's going to come back. It's going to be bigger and growing and everything. So yes, there's something called what we say to stay with it, stay the emotion and really experience and feel it. And then it will go and ease. It's not as easy as it says, as I say it, even for me sometimes. But 
Yes, you know, something else that came to mind is what advice would you give to people who want to help their friends and loved ones in the same sort of way? What are a couple of things that we could do for our loved ones? It's a challenging question because the way I do is I'm telling them about my experience, why I'm doing it. For example, about the breathing or the walking or, oh, I tried lying on the floor and it felt so great. Would you try as well? Yeah, more like inviting them to experience it together rather than, I'm not an advisory person who would give an advice, rather than just telling them, oh, you maybe you need to try this. And No, 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 let's do together. Let's try out, see why I enjoy it, why I like it. Maybe you're going to like too. So more coming from this together, experiencing it. All these, what I mentioned before as well. Mm, this would be my advice. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's good. I like that too. That's how I got into <laughs> yoga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that sort of play into, we were saying earlier about the feeling, the emotion and staying in it. Is that the sort of process that goes in sort of dance movement therapy? Where you do you stay in, in sort of and use that emotion to express yourself and physically? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So in dance movement psychotherapy, actually, we help to express these emotions with movement and dance. It can be any type of emotion, any struggles, anything. So, for example, sometimes I invite my students to express me movement, what how they feel. Because it's going to show me way more. It's going to tell me way more than they can tell with words. And for them as well, things can come up because our bodies restores more information, more memories, what we can process or what is aware or what is available for us. And this movement at the same time as it's changing, it's going to change in ourselves too. But this is a way to, to express and to process definitely. That's amazing. I tell you what, I definitely feel that. If I think about times that I've danced around and how I felt at the end of the song, it's always this kind of feeling of alive and happy and really good, right? Actually, Jonathan has a story to hear because, as I understand it, you had dance classes as a kid, right? Which is super cool. Yes, my mum is a psychologist. <laughs> she also mm. did a bit of, she was a child psychology. I think she specialised bilingual children. Mm -hmm. and which is hence why I speak a bit of French eh? <laughs> and, and my little sister she went to French school all the way up until she was in secondary but yeah so she noticed I was really shy I wasn't very I wasn't going I loved books and I was kind of like I like sports and stuff and team sports I would never be the person to really engage and start mm -hmm. a football match I'll be in the football match I'd love being around people but I wasn't very talkative and she booked, she got me to do some drama classes. Mm -hmm. I think it was at Stagecoach. <laughs> so yeah, so we went to some drama with my sister. And then she took us to dance classes. So we would do sort of like, you know, like hip hop, mm -hmm. reggae and R&B yes. dance and, and all of that. So we'd do that and almost on a weekly basis. And that sort of got me outside of my shell where I was now really talkative, you know, she plopped me in the middle of France and I was still talking to other children <laughs> <laughs> with my limited vocabulary. Yeah, so it really helped. <laughs> it's quite Do you know funny. what? My mum sent me to drama classes with my sister when I was young and I don't remember not liking it when I first got there, but she tells me I didn't. 
all I remember is how much I loved it. And there was this one thing that we did. I don't know if you had it as well, Jonathan, but they called it the machine. So you had a whole lot of kids and you'd say, okay, now you start doing something. And they started pretending that they were twisting and turning. And you just keep doing that. And then the next kid comes along and, and they're just going to keep moving their arm like it's oh, a yeah. piston. <laughs> End up with 12 kids making this moving machine. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> I loved it. Oh, yeah. That's no, good. It is. It is. I can relate to that as a child, too. So that's really helped me to find my identity as a woman as well, to feel comfortable in my body and to kind of accept and being on the stage, being seen. So there are a lot of things around that, too. Yeah, I can definitely relate how it. Could you just tell us a bit about that? Because something I think about a lot is equality, particularly gender equality. I particularly think about the things that aren't me because I don't understand them because I haven't experienced them, right? So I remember really clearly when I was about 13 and or maybe 14 and my little sister's three years younger, I remember being at the swimming pool and noticing people noticing her for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that's like the moment that my childhood ended. I remember the way that people were looking at her as her body changed. Yes. And I remember how that interestingly affected the way that she walked. So she's very tall. And so she kind of, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this because she will listen to this. And I love you and I respect <laughs> you. But I think this will help other people. She just sort of stoops a little bit to mm -hmm. appear less tall. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. Was that, do you feel perhaps due to her being seen in a different way for the first time? Can be. I mean, it's the best to ask her about that. I will. Yes, I mean, from my own experience, speaking about myself, yes, definitely something around. When as a woman, my body started to change and I couldn't process it, but I noticed others' gaze and noticing. And then I felt ashamed, start to hide. And I remember I didn't wear like really pretty clothes or, or things that would show my shape. No way. <laughs> I had t-shirts covering, jumpers, everything. And then dance helped me to find a safe way to show it. And in a properly covered, but still in a kind of appropriate, protected way where I felt that this way, yes, they can look at me, but I'm okay with that. And I think, and I have clients who I work with still for after long, long years, they still are struggling, for example, to wear a professional business costume or to be, they call it to be pretty and visible because shame comes to it. Yes, it's all around as well, unfortunately, with shame. That's just so sad, isn't it? Yeah. But this is on the other way around as well. So I don't say that this just only happened with um, girls or women. It can happen with any of us. And I think it happens as well. I think you're right. I mean, I imagine this didn't happen to you, Jonathan, because you're a big strapping lad. But I definitely was late to to grow up and I was late to grow out, if you know mm. what I mean. And uh, and I remember <laughs> I remember looking at my friends around me and feeling like they were all mountain peaks and I was a valley in terms of vertical <laughs> height. And uh, and then I remember one day when we were all when I kind of caught up and I was like, oh, OK, now we're, we're kind of the same again. <laughs> I have a similar story actually I was pretty short everybody had a growth spurt before me I was, I was still like 
um, maybe a year or two, probably around a year behind everybody else, like taller and a lot bigger. But there was only there was quite a few of us. I have an interesting story about that actually. A bunch of bullies used to steal our football. They're from an ethnic background where they sort of mature a lot earlier. So being my friends, we're mm-hmm. mostly Caribbean or African. Mm-hmm. So we were we're sort of late late bloomers. So we had no no facial hair, <laughs> to live it small. And then we caught up in our early teens. I think we were around or roughly around fifteen, sixteen. We caught up and just got really big, really fast. And there was no more bullying after one incident. <laughs> that was really good because they literally picked on us for almost I think it was like two or three years. <laughs> we were just too small to do anything. But yeah. That's, that's an interesting story, but yeah, it is. Yeah, I understand that. I understand that. I mean, I come from a tall family. All the women in my family are quite tall, so my little sister's a bit taller than me. Oh, I love you. Get my disclaimers out. Love you, Hannah Louise. Get my disclaimers out. Yeah, she's taller than me, and uh, I have a few cousins who are really tall as well, over six, six two, I think. And you do notice sometimes different situations that they would change the way they carry themselves. Obviously, now we're a lot older, and I think they've you come to terms and you have these coping mechanisms or you understand yourself and you understand the world around you a bit more. But it's still something that people battle with every day. And one of your sisters, at least, is is a really successful performer, right? So, Oh, yeah. yeah maybe we'll she, get her on the show and ask her if there was <laughs> a kind of a conquering of fear and a, a sort of accepting of self that came along with, with her starting to perform. What about when you apply these kinds of thoughts and and ways of helping people and coaching to your other role as a head of people. It's for the Gregorian House Hotel, am I right? Yes, yeah, it's for... Actually, what happened there is I started to work there eight years ago as maid and the waitress. And then the owner, later my general manager, they both knew what I'm learning, what I'm studying and then I became supervisor, food and beverage manager and I found a program about supporting employees' well-being and it was all for free and I asked them if I can do that uh, for the hotel and for the employees and they said yes, yes of course. So this is how it all started and after actually I left this manager role and they created for me this role that exists before it's a kind of HR role and looking after the employees' well-being. Definitely, I use this approach with them and there as well from a different angle, more around stress management, communicational issues, or how to handle difficult situations, even with guests or between each other. I feel really lucky that actually they onboard my profession. That's got to be good for all the people there too, right? Yeah. Have you seen people flourish having that support? Yes, I saw changes, definitely. And also they know they can turn to me and I can help them where to turn to because I really need to be aware of my boundaries there. Like kind of I'm there, not a therapist, I'm not a counsellor, but I know where to turn to or what to do on the the first level or for example how to handle a situation if someone going through domestic uh, violence what to do how to speak with the person so it means a lot it really supports my confidence in that role and I can help my um, 
manager and the owner as well how to find a way to support them still in an appropriate way within that framework of an industry. I think they're lucky to have you <laughs> with the, the skills and the interests that you have in that Thank role. You. Because even just as a normal manager who's not a an HR or head of people manager, it amazes me and humbles me how many normal human dilemmas are brought to me mm-hmm. with the hope that I can help. Mm-hmm. And and there are times when I really feel unqualified <laughs> to be able to help people in the way yeah. that I would like. Do you ever get that feeling, Jonathan, that we kind of have this, there's almost like this client trust mm-hmm. I just didn't expect, but I'm really humbled by? Mm, yeah. And we want to help our teams, right? So it seems to me that the head of people role is particularly interesting because there's it's not just the helping that person and the listening to that person and supporting that person in that moment, is it, Esther? It's it's also talking to the team and helping yes. the team outwardly and publicly, isn't it? Yeah. Quite a role to balance that with the internal need to manage people for a profit. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and also to manage that kind of discussion between the two. So <laughs> to have the discussion between the management and the team. And because I see, I think this is something really interesting to notice. I see both needs and both expectations. Okay, so how to find a way they can understand each other's needs and expectations and to make the most out of it. So I have this kind of mediator role as well sometimes, I feel too. I wonder if that role sometimes is a little bit like a parent in terms of they go to mum, they go to dad. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it can be. (laughs) Super interesting. I think we should probably move on to the sharing section. What do you think, Jonathan? Yeah, so this section, Esther, (laughs) is uh, is, is mostly the, this is the the part where we get to know just a little bit more into your, what you enjoy in Mm -hmm. terms of entertainment and books and projects and, and stuff along those lines. This is a doozy, a doozy to start off with. <laughs> Who do you most look up to in the world? Actually, it's my mum. Yes. Um, Love you, mum. Yes. Hey, mum. <laughs> um, she's a really inspiring, clever woman. So she was a single mum. She always worked hard and she has a career in philosophy of art and in university field in aesthetics so she wrote 10 books. So she's a really clever and amazing uh, woman. And I think the way I as well, I look up her is just the determination. And she always fights for what is right for her. And this energy, unstoppable being, I think this is what I always admire in her. I get the sense that both of us have a little bit of that, right, Jonathan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love listening to people who study philosophy as well, philosophy of science and other things. It's mm-hmm. just always like a different perspective on things as well. Definitely. You, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a good way, but I always uh, grew up in the why question, kind yeah. of getting everything <laughs> from all different perspectives, <laughs> which I think the way I think now, it's really, really gave me the base. That questioning nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what about books? What books have you read lately that inspired you that you might like to share with folks? So I was thinking a lot about this, but I think I'm going to share one which I just recently started and I got from my friend. 
It's at the pond swimming at Hampstead Ladies Pond. Actually, this pond exists in London and I like to swim there. But since lockdown, I couldn't. And this swimming thing is, it was challenged. And reading through this book, I can really relate and connect because there are short stories about the experience of being there and how it is, what they feel that is the one which I picked. Beautiful. You know, I have a friend who is probably listening and she actually moved into that area of London from Australia mm. and worked in the local bookshop and cafe. Mm -hmm. And I remember her describing it to me and saying, I live in London. And I was like, that's a big city. How's <laughs> that for you being someone who's experienced country in your life? right? Mm. And she said, well, it's funny. I found this pocket in Hampstead and there's actually these ponds and there's mm -hmm. a pond that's just for ladies to swim in. Yes. <laughs> and that is not the way that I imagine London to be at all, right? Quite a special pocket, isn't it? With a community. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah, definitely. And this book really gives back the feeling. This is me making space for you, Jonathan. <laughs> Jonathan might be waiting for his little one you to know, stop crying in the background. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and also, he probably doesn't know how to work the mute button. I've done the old trademark where I've fought and muted my mic and I didn't. So... <laughs> <laughs> so we should we should say that most common sen sentence, right? I think yeah. you're on mute. Has to be top ten phrases of all time now. <laughs> <laughs> What's the weather like? So, the onto projects and movement that have most excited you. Yeah. So actually, there is one which is my research project. I'm commissioned with moving pieces, which is led by Charlie Blowers, and I'm gonna investigate their approach in supporting people's quality of life who are living with medically unexplained symptoms. And currently we are recruiting participants for this art and science-based research. But this is currently the most excited about what will emerge and how will this be. But this is a long-term wow. project. Where can people find out more about the project? They can contact me via my website as well. And also on the Moving Pieces website too, there are more information, if anyone, yeah. And hopefully, we'll, well, not hopefully, <laughs> we'll have the link to your website in our show notes, any other links, and you're welcome yeah, to do a you. guest post on our website as you would like. Okay, so. thank you very much. Can you hear the seagulls in the background? No, but I really oh, do wish it. I was in the scenery. <laughs> if only the microphone wasn't so good at controlling noise. They are yeah. currently deciding right behind me and above me on the roof who is going to nest with who. And it's quite an important life decision for the seagull community. Mm. And they're making quite a lot of noise. <laughs> so. But yes, we will certainly have um, those links on the show notes. Uh, is there anything else you would like to share or that you're working on, Esther, before we let you go? No, actually, I think I shared almost everything. <laughs> you, you noticed all, yeah, and you mentioned all. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for being on the show. It's been really interesting. And this is probably one of the shows of all of them, Jonathan, that I'm going to think about <laughs> as well. Yeah. <laughs> While I'm standing up straight and breathing. It was a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So thank you for tuning in, folks. Well, don't forget thank to subscribe. You. And Esther, thank you for being on. And folks, we look forward to another episode, another day. Have a good, safe evening, morning, lunchtime, wherever you might be. Thank you.